comes above the den It's hard to know if this will Welcome to episode 405 of the Thinking Poker Podcast. From Catonsville, Maryland, I am Andrew Brokus. And from Las Vegas, Nevada, I'm Carlos Welch. And we will be joined shortly by uh, our guest. And, you know, he told me how to pronounce his name, but it's been a long time since we did this interview. <laughs> I, th- I think I had permission to just say Peter Jorgen, um, although it's spelled uh, J R. J-O-R-G-N-E. Um, in any event, uh, I, I will probably be making some small mistake no matter how I say it. But uh, Peter is our guest. Um, Peter actually was recommended to us by a different Peter. Uh, I'm not even going to try to pronounce his last name. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they, the, the two Peters are, are friends. And uh, Peter number two, who recommended Peter number one to us. Uh, Peter number two is a listener to the show and a supporter on Patreon. And Peter Peter number one is his friend and sort of poker coaching student. Um, so Peter Jorgen, our guest, um, is a, I think, serial entrepreneur, um, started a lot of, started and, and sold a lot of companies in like the fintech space uh, and technically retired now, although still seems to be consulting for a, a lot of different companies or advising a lot of different companies. But one of the things he took up in, in his kind of active retirement was playing poker and uh, our, our listener, Peter, kind of took Peter Jorgen under his wing a little bit and along with some friends was kind of trying to like teach him how to play poker and like prepare him to play bigger events. And uh, they must have done a pretty good job because Peter Jorgen ended up uh, finishing second in the uh, EPT Paris main event for quite a hefty chunk of change. So we had an interesting conversation with him about, you know, what does, uh, you know, and I think we have a lot of listeners who fall in this category, like retired or semi-retired people who want to take poker seriously. And, you know, what's the process for doing that? How do you get better? How you hold your own with people who are longtime professionals and have more time to put into practicing than you do or have already put a lot of time into practicing and you're trying to play catch up on that. Uh, and then Peter's just an interesting guy, even outside of the, the poker things. So that's what we have coming up for you in the interview. Um, anything else that you want to say about Peter? No, I just, uh, I'll, I'll mention my little weird thoughts that I have. Um, so when I was in Jamaica um, years ago, I played poker with some locals there, and two of them were of Asian ethnicity, but they were Jamaicans born and raised, and they all called themselves Peter. It was so weird. It was like <laughs> like it wasn't their real name. Like Their real name was probably hard to pronounce, so they said, okay, just call me Peter. And I remember there was like old Peter and fat Peter. And so it was funny. <laughs> like we talked about the two Peters here and it made me think about my two friends, my two Asian Jamaican friends um, named Peter that I'll probably never know their real names because their first names are hard to pronounce. Unlike these actual Peters who have uh, the hard to pronounce last names. So that was the thought that was going through my head when you talked about the Peters. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. <laughs> 
Uh, we also have some strategy to talk before we go talk to Peter. And our strategy segment, as always, is brought to you by GTO Wizard. If you are one of our supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily, not only will you get access to daily strategy segments from Carlos and me, you also will be entered into a drawing to win a free one-month starter membership at GTO Wizard. Uh even if you don't make any sort of uh, financial commitment to us or to them, you can read for free the GTO Wizard blog, which I would, I mean, I don't even think this is close really at this point. Like, I think the GTO Wizard blog is the best free source of poker information on the internet. Um, I mean, I, I'm writing, I think, some of the best like poker material that I've ever put out. I'm writing for there. And then, you know, a number of other good poker theorists are writing for them as well. Some of whom have been guests on the show before, like um, Matt Hunter, Christopher George, Tombos, who we just had on here recently. Um, and so, yeah, that's fully available for free. And what we'll talk about today is actually going to be based on some of the articles that I've written for them recently about uh, continuation betting, or I guess just in general playing in the scenario where um, you have raised preflop and you've been cold called by an in-position player. So we can talk a little bit about both strategy for playing as the out-of-position preflop raiser and also strategy for playing as the in-position cold caller. And the main thing that I think is distinctive about this situation or you know, why, why it's important to talk about it is that this is just if you're playing against someone who's playing well, which is which is a big F, I understand. <laughs> but if you're playing against someone who's, who's playing well, this situation is wildly different from playing against a person who called from the big blind. Especially when you're in a tournament, when the big blind has so much incentive to call with weak hands, there's just like there's a massive range disparity between the preflop raiser and a big blind caller in, in a tournament. And it's that's just not true when you're dealing with an imposition called color. Like your ranges should be pretty similar. So I think a lot of people get themselves into a lot of trouble, and myself until very recently included, um, just trying to extrapolate uh, general principles that you have of what continuation betting strategy looks like when you're playing against a big blind caller, and then trying to carry that forward to uh, playing against a person who has cold called you in position. Does that ring true from from your experience of uh, coaching people? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I think back to exactly where I was when you talked to me about, you know, what we should do when we get called by a player in position. Um, at the time, we both were kind of surprised at how often we should be checking in theory. And I think we both made a mistake of just like almost checking too often because of that, which was probably a pretty good adjustment. Um compared to what we were doing at the time, which is probably betting too often. But it's nice to like have uh, free resources like this that can kind of help us, uh, you know, calibrate that a little bit better. Yeah. And so I, I think there, there's, I just want to like build out the intuition behind why checking at such a high frequency is correct. So the, the first thing is just that there is in general, you don't really have a range advantage <laughs> when you're called by a person who's in position. Um, they are generally like the, the preflop. Of course, this varies a little bit depending on what the flop looks like. But preflop, like the equity should be pretty close. Their calling range should not really be weaker than your raising range, which is not true if we're dealing with like a big blind or even a small blind caller where there, I mean, 
for one, they're getting a discount on the call. If someone calls from the blinds, they can call with a pretty wide range, especially from the big blind, because they're getting a discount, because they already have chips invested, but also because they're closing the action. So when the big blind calls, they don't have to worry about anyone re-raising behind them or even just calling behind them and, and then taking some equity away from them in that way. Whereas when a player who's in position cold calls, especially if they're not on the button, although this is true even of the button, you know, there is the risk that other people, and a substantial risk, that other people are going to you know, three bet or even call behind them. And so they need pretty good hands and they're not getting a discount on the call. They don't have any money already invested. So there's really, so the other thing they don't have going for them, they don't have fold equity. So when you open, there's a chance that everyone's just going to fold or that you're just going to end up heads up against the big blind. And then like you win a disproportionate share of those pots. So those are like the two best things that can happen when you open raise that you either you take the pot down immediately or you end up heads up against the big blind. And a lot of your EV, especially from some of the weaker hands that you raise, comes from those two outcomes. When someone cold calls a raise, they can't get those things. Like once you cold call a raise, you're never winning a pre-flop without saying a flop, and you're never getting heads up against the big blind. You're going to have to play against a player who's already raised in early position and has a, a fairly strong range. So a cold caller's range should be fairly symmetric with the original raisers. It should be a little bit capped, unless we're talking about really short stack like tournament situations, it should be a little bit capped relative to the preflop raiser. Like this, the, the one advantage the preflop raiser does have is they're generally more likely to have like aces, kings, ace, king. And when you're evaluating a flop texture, that's actually a pretty important question to ask yourself is how how good are these hands? Like on this board, in this situation, with this stack depth, can I treat a hand like aces or kings or queens as the nuts? And when the answer to that question is yes, you do have a little bit of advantage as the preflop raiser. When the answer to that question is no, you know, if you're particularly deep stacked or if the like, straights and flushes are possible on the board, then you don't really have an advantage for, based on having been the preflop raiser. Uh, the equities are pretty close. Even if your equity is a little bit better than your opponent's, because you're out of position, your equity realization is going to be lower. So you really are not favored to win this pot. When a player cold calls you in position, a bad thing has happened for you. You are no longer favored to win the pot. Most of your hands lose EV in this scenario. Because um, again, like what a lot of the EV of opening preflop with something that's not aces, like if you open preflop with like ace 10 suited, you know, a lot of your EV comes from everybody folding and a lot of it comes from getting heads up against the big blind. Once someone cold calls in position, that is bad. <laughs> and uh, there's many hands that if you knew that someone were going to cold call you in position, you would prefer not to open them. Right. And I, th I think I just don't open a lot of those hands because in the games I play, I kind of do know that yeah. somebody's going to call me in position because if you are under the gun and you have like four or five people with position on you, it's pretty um, uh, easy to guess that one of them are going to call if they're like calling station types. So, yeah, you can definitely play tighter under the gun um, in a lot of weaker um, games. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Uh, and one of the ways that I think about this is like when you open even some hands that like a solver would consider at least borderline opens, like a you know, pocket fives from under the gun. When you open a hand like pocket fives and your opponent makes a like quote bad call with let's say queen six suited, 
that's not actually a bad call against pocket five. I mean, it's a bad call against your under the gun yeah. range and it might be a bad call that's helping other people. Like the button benefits from them making a loose call because now there's like weak money in the pot and, and the button who has position can, can benefit from that in some ways. Uh, or like the big blind, you know, maybe they're going to get some like extra squeezing opportunities because there's this weak money out there. You as the person who raised under the gun are not benefiting from this. That person who's calling with queen six suited is giving up EV to players behind them and taking EV from you and giving it to players behind them. And you are just sitting there like an asshole with pocket fives. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, just hoping to hit a set because if you don't, you pretty much check voting. Yes, I think it's like when you're playing at at a a kind of loose passive table, I mean, these things kind of cut in both directions because like the passivity is good. Like you get three bet less often than a solver expects. But I I think it's generally correct that you do want to be a little bit tighter in early position. In later position, like if if you are opening from late position or you're raising limpers from late position or something like that, then there's more room to be liberal because now the person making the loose call, if they're making the loose call from out of position, that's good for you. You are benefiting from that. But you know, I would rather have queen six suited in position than pocket fives out of position. So, you know, you don't want to volunteer. Like you said, if, if you can basically, really, there's no chance I'm just taking the spot down pre-flop, then, yeah, a lot of the like weaker hands that a solver might suggest opening. And I think this goes for some of the small suited aces as well, like an ace six suited or something. Um, I think those hands are, you know, like the, they rely a lot on pre-flop fold equity. And if you're not getting that pre-flop fold equity, then I think it makes sense to be tighter in early position and to be, you know, if anything, looser in, in late position. Exactly. Um, so I guess the the other exploit that I'll mention is if you if you are dealing with a person who calls too wide preflop and and there's a whole chapter of plasma poker two that's dedicated to um, discussing this scenario as well of, of playing as an out of position um, preflop raiser. If, if we look at a scenario where we give the imposition cold caller like an appropriate range, uh, like a sort of solver approved range or a range as equity runs fairly close to the preflop raiser's equity, we can look at a case. Uh, it's not hard to find a flop where you're just supposed to have a zero percent continuation betting frequency. Like as the out of position player, you just never bet. Like you said, I think you and I at some point took that too far. Like this is not every flop, but there are flops uh, and, and not a not a small number of them where you're supposed to bet like rarely or never. But if you then go back and you give the cold caller and overly wide range that is, I mean, not unreasonable. It's consistent with how I think some people in like, especially smaller stakes like live cash games tend to play. You just make them like way too loose with those calls. Then your C betting frequency can jump back up to like 60 or 70%. So this gets to the question of targeting. Like, what are you doing when, when you're betting the flop? Uh, the, the continuation bet mostly targets like air in, in the opponent's range. When you just bet once for a small size, what you're really trying to do is just cause your opponent to fold hands and have no coordination with the board. A well-constructed cold calling range shouldn't have a lot of hands like that, at least not more than the original Razor does. But a poorly constructed preflop cold calling range that does have a lot of like queen six suited sort of stuff in it is going to miss a lot of flops. And so you can get away with just like betting at a really high frequency because they are going to end up, you know, there's very often going to be holding a hand that has no coordination with the board. But that won't be true for a player who does a good job of cold calling in position. Right. So when the equities are split pretty closely, what we often see is just that like neither player has that much incentive to grow the pot. So it's not even necessarily the case. Even these spots where like the out of position player is checking at a really high frequency, it's not necessarily the case that the in position player then bets at a really high frequency. I mean, there are cases like that, but that's not even always the case. Sometimes it's just like it's not like neither player really benefits that much because the equities are close. There's a lot of hands and neither player really wants to bet that much. So 
you do want to start by thinking about like how strong is this imposition cold callers range? And some of that's a question of who is this player, but some of it's also a question of what position are they in. So the earlier their position when they call you, the stronger their range should be. If you open under the gun, under the gun one calls, that's a stronger range than if you open under the gun and the button calls. Even though your range is the same, so the range that they're expecting to be up against is the same, that person, when they call an early position, they're taking on a lot more risk because there's so many more people behind them relative to a button raiser knows at least they're going to be in position after the flop. There's only two people left who can who can re-raise. So you can, like all things equal, you can be a little more inclined to continuation bet when you're called by a player who's in later position. Yeah, one thing that I've noticed when studying GTO Wizard is that the gap between your position and your opponent's position as that widens your continuation betting frequency widens so like you said in the case where you open on the gun versus utg caller you're going to check more often because the ranges are closer but if you open there and get called by the button you do to get to do a decent amount more betting but also if you open from like cutoff and button calls you at that point your opening range is still going to be um fairly close to theirs so it's almost the same situation where you would do a decent amount of checking there so the way i think about it is if my, if the caller is close to me i'm checking more often regardless of which which position i open from but if there's a big gap between my position and the caller's position then my uh betting frequency goes up yeah that's a really good point um so i think in general when when you're evaluating flops the, you want to come back to that question that I mentioned earlier of how much, how, how good are the big overpairs on this flop? Can I treat those hands as the nuts? Because that is the advantage that you have as the out of position pre-flop raiser. So you can have a somewhat higher betting frequency on those boards. Generally, the hands that you're looking to bet are um, what, I, what I think of as like strong but vulnerable hands, which again is often these like overpairs. Um, sometimes even like the weaker overpairs benefit even more from betting, something like pocket tens on a seven three deuce flop or something like that. Uh, right. where the hand is quite strong now, maybe even strong enough that it could like play for stacks or play a big pot now, but a, a single turn card, just like it, it's a hand that's very susceptible to um, getting drawn out on by giving a free card or losing a lot of its value. It's gonna be harder to value bet that hand. Even if it's still the best hand, it's gonna be harder to get value from it if the turn brings an ace or a king or a queen. So those are the hands that benefit the most from betting. Um, and those are also hands, because this is always something you have to consider when you're out of position, those are also hands that are uh, you know, arguably not strong enough to check raise. It can be dependent a little bit on, on stack depth, but usually not looking to like check raise and play a huge pot with those hands. So that's part of, that's the other reason for betting them is like they're not very appealing in the case where it goes check check, but they're also not super appealing in the case where you check on your opponent bets because it's kind of iffy to to check raise those. So generally like you do want to be thinking about check raising because checking is an important part of your strategy, check raising is going to be an important part of your strategy. And generally what you're looking for when you check raise is you want either a really nutty hand, a hand that you uh, are either currently excited about playing a big pot with or that at least you're drawing to something that if you get there you'll be excited to play a big pot with it so you know uh draws of various sorts even backdoor draws can be nice check raising candidates for to, to fill out your like check raise bluffing range but you're supposed to do a fair bit of checking and calling like you just you don't have an advantage that that's the thing that like i, I just want to keep hammering on it because i think it's very counterintuitive for for a lot of people you don't have an advantage as the pre-flop raiser i know we're used to thinking of the pre-flop raisers as having a range advantage but uh you don't you don't have one so bottom line, because you're in a disadvantageous position, 
this is really about making the best of a bad situation. And I think sometimes people, and again, I'm very much including myself uh, in this, in this category, there's this feeling of like, I don't know how to play these situations well because I'm torn. You know, like there are certain hands where I'm like, Oh, am I supposed to bet this? Or am I supposed to check it? Or after you check, then you have a tough decision about whether to call. And often in these spots, the solver also has a tough decision. Like anytime that you see a mix, <laughs> when you see like, you could check or you could bet or facing a bet, like it could be a call, it could be a raise, it could be a fold. Um, those like, that's the solver saying like, I don't have, I mean, they, they might even be bad option. It might be choosing between two, like somewhat good options, but the sense of like, I don't know what, what is the right thing to do here? Um, that's because there's not a right thing to do, at least not unless you have some insight that your opponent, you know, bets too often or not enough or whatever. But like the equilibrium is that you are torn between those options. And often one of those options is fold or one of those options, you know, they, these, these options do have a low EV. Like you're going to have more hands. You're just not capturing a lot of the pot with when someone cold calls you. So I think it's good to like let go of the idea that there's something that you're supposed to be doing here that you know, they're sort of like that this should feel good. <laughs> like, you're not necessarily going to find an option that feels good. It's, it is going to be about how do I make the the best of a bad situation. And I do think it's helpful to start with like, well, checking should be a kind of strong baseline, which might even mean checking some hands, despite the fact that you can, you can see an upside to betting, right? Cause I think this is one of the reasons why people bet too much is they just see like, well, it would be nice if I bet and my opponent folded or, you know, my, there is some danger of my hand getting drawn out on, or like there's a draw on the board, like those kinds of that. I mean, yes, that's an advantage to betting. It doesn't make, that's not dispositive. Like it doesn't tell you that you should definitely bet just because this thing is true. There's also a significant disadvantage to betting, which is that like growing the pot from out of position is not good for you. Um, you are not like growing the pot is about it, it, it's good for you to grow the pot when you're favored to win it. And that's not just about having the best hand or having an equity advantage. Being out of position means you're less likely to win the pot. And so you have less incentive to grow the pot. And yeah, so I think you should consider maybe even checking some hands that don't immediately jump out at you as like obvious checks. Right, right. It's more about equity realization than just having the equity advantage when the equity advantage is such a small one. Yeah. And for, for playing as the imposition player, you want to remember that you, you do have the advantage here like as, as the person who called and you were going to continue to have the advantage on the turn and river. So you know, for kind of the same reasons that, you know, we see preflop, there's more incentive for the out of position player to try to end the hand immediately, including sometimes like we've talked about um, making some really big shoves, uh, just jamming like 40 big blinds over a button open because the alternative of you know playing out of position by calling or by making a smaller three bet is kind of unappealing for the same reason. Like the out of position player is usually the one who has more incentive to end the hand immediately on the flop. So as the imposition player, you're not necessarily looking to like raise the flop and, and just get all in or like bet the flop and get all in versus a check raise or something like you kind of want to think of it as this is an opportunity to put the screws to my opponent. And one of the ways that I do that is by forcing them to play out of position on later streets, especially when the board is dynamic, where any card that comes or most cards that come are going to change the texture of the board and they're going to shift hand values around where a hand that was strong on the flop isn't so strong anymore and a hand that was weak on the flop is strong now. So position, of course, is always good, but it's extra good on dynamic boards. And when the board is dynamic, it's not really in your interest to end the hand right away. You often do better by forcing your opponent, to, like if your opponent bets, rather than raising and then you know giving them some like 
easy outs uh, to sometimes jam on you and, and sometimes fold. Uh, calling is, is a more appealing proposition when you're in position and you can get to see how your opponent reacts to changes in the board texture. And again, it's easy to see downsides of this. Like, what if I what if I call and then this card comes? Like, okay, but what if that card doesn't come? <laughs> like, you just you want to evaluate these things as, as a, a cost rather than as just a, like, well, I have to run away from that at all costs. Um, so the, I, I think that framing it as my objective here is to put my opponent in the difficult spots. Often that entails forcing them to play out of position on later streets. One of the ways you do that is by not raising the flop terribly often when your opponent bets another, because again, like their betting range should be somewhat strong. They, they shouldn't be just blindly betting. If they are see betting hundred percent, then yeah, you can you know, more, more aggressively bluff raise them, but um, they, they, they shouldn't be betting that often. So the, the fact that they're betting at all after you've called, called them pre-flop should be a little bit of a, you know, a sign of strength, but also when they check to you, you're not necessarily looking to make like huge bets and blow them out. You can make small bets because you're getting like a disproportionate amount of fold equity on your small bets. Essentially you're benefiting from leverage when your opponent calls your small, like if you bet a third pot, yeah, I mean, your opponent's getting four to one, but they can't just call with every hand that has 20% equity because they have to actually realize that equity. And that means they're going to have to play out of position against you on later streets. And that's hard to do. So when you make small bets, well, any bet gets a disproportionate amount of fold equity, but often small bets um, benefit the most from that. So when your opponent does check to you and you're the imposition player, you mostly want to be thinking about small bets or checks that's a little bit that's not quite as, as strong of a general rule but i think that people often bet too large in this situation because they're more in the mindset of like i just want to like take it down right away and that's actually not really to your benefit as the imposition player what you want to do is you want to make cheap bluffs and, and you know cheap like thin value bets and protection bets because those have some extra punch as a result of like even getting a good price it's still kind of hard for your opponent to continue with some of the hands that um that have the equity if, if if the hand were just over now if they just called your flop bet then you know, they could continue with a lot of hands that are actually going to be pretty hard to continue with right they have the equity but not the equity realization yeah and yeah i, I think that that's a good thing to highlight because i think i don't know i imagine some people maybe are listening to this and aren't fully clear on what the term equity realization means and i mean that could be its own episode in fact i think we have had strategy discussions around equity realization before but i would really encourage you if you are listening to this and you're not real clear on, on what we mean by that i would encourage you to look i mean you can, it can be as simple as, as googling it i've written an article for gto wizard that's about equity realization um the, i explain the concept of equity realization in the play optimal poker books there's lots of places that, that you can encounter this but i think understanding that concept of equity realization is very important and thinking about you know how that intersects with the idea of like equity and, and pot odds uh, is is very important and this is kind of a, a more advanced strategy concept that builds on top of that one right anything else you would like to talk about on this subject no no i think we gave a pretty thorough uh primer on both in position and out of position and i'm glad we did because uh this is something i struggle with as well and so, yeah, I think this is going to be beneficial for me and everyone listening. Awesome. 
Well, I will say, you know, if, if you do want to see some more discussion of this, including with some examples and some screenshots from GTO Wizard that uh, demonstrate a little bit more of you know, what these betting ranges look like and how this varies depending on flop texture and stack size and uh, things like that, then uh, do check out blog.gtowizard.com or I'll put links to these specific articles in the show notes and you can find me elaborating on these concepts a little bit more. With that said, please enjoy our interview with Peter Jorgen. Welcome, Peter, and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Uh, I realized I should ask you, how do you pronounce your last name? Oh, it's in Swedish, it's Jörgne. Uh, Jörgne. But in English, Jorgne is quite all right. Okay, that's what I've been saying in my head. So I'm... <laughs> yeah, you can imagine when I, when I was young, uh, you know, you have these uh, soccer diplomas and uh, karate diplomas, and not a single time my surname was pronounced or spelled correctly. Were, were you not a student in Sweden? Yeah, when I was a student in Sweden. So even Swedes have a huge problem with my with my last name. Oh, is, is it not a Swedish last name? It is. It is. It is. That's just a strong guy. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's just one of those things. So I, I was always bullied for my uh, for the pronunciation of my last name. <laughs> I, I wasn't sure. I, I realized I did a thing uh, in, in emailing you also, which might be annoying. Um, you know, it's it's hard for me on the keyboard to find the the character. Uh, I mean, is it an umlaut? The yeah. with, with the, the dots above the O. So I, I think I was just using a plain O. But I don't know if that's like uh, disrespecting your name. I apologize. No, that's perfect. It, that's perfect. Okay. <laughs> Um, so, you know, the, the way that your friend Peter uh, introduced you to us was that you had kind of only been playing poker seriously, as he put it, for like 10 months or so. And you've just finished second in the uh, EPT in Paris. So congratulations on that. And and would you say that is accurate or is there anything you'd want to correct about your, your poker career? Yeah, thank you very much. And, and yes, that that is correct. <laughs> um, we set out on a journey in, in April last year. Uh, basically making uh, Peter Pistammer and Mikael Bartov my coaches. And they trained me uh, ahead of EPT Barcelona. So that was our first event. And the goal was to see if they could maybe uh, get me to a final table. But none of us, to be honest, <laughs> thought that that was going to happen, uh, at least not within one year so. What was the impetus for that? I mean, you'd been playing poker casually, at least, before that, right? Yeah, exactly. So like at home games and uh, a couple of times in the casino in Stockholm. What, uh, what was the appeal of poker to you when you were, um, you know, b- before you entered the space where, you, where you're trying to take it seriously? Like what, what did you get out of the game? I, I just think it's extremely fun, <laughs> to, to be honest. And even if I... I've learned so much, you know, the last year and, you know, how how beautiful a game it is for, for people that, that really know poker. So I realized that I've been, uh, um, uh, what's the English word for it? Um, you know, I've been destroying the game. <laughs> you understand what I mean? I'm, yeah. I'm, Michael, I, I, I've been a thorn in their side when they see how I, I play cards instead of poker. And, you know, I've been pissing them off 
Yeah, I think the the way that you put that, the the beauty of the game is is quite nice um, because I think it is it's sort of a, a nice puzzle uh, as you start to understand it. And and I really don't think of it as as gambling basically at all anymore. The the money is just kind of in the background for me, and I try as much as possible to think about it as you know the just to, to see the underlying strategy and and to solve the puzzle of every situation that I'm in. Yeah, exactly. It's like every player at the at the table have, have their own chessboard. And it's to to figure out, you know, how they put their pieces up and how they play them, and certain in different situations, different stack sizes, and you know what have you. It's it's extremely multifaceted game. When did you start to see that? I mean, how did you make this transition from you know I'm I'm kind of playing casually with friends or whatever to uh, now I I see that there's this depth to the game and I want to start taking it more more seriously. How did that happen? Honestly, I didn't see that until we were, uh, you know, quite a bit into our project. Oh, okay. Uh, so, so well then, how, how did you decide to start taking it more seriously in the first place? No, that was um, in one of the home games where I dunked the, the flop into Peter and he busted me. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he took me aside and said, Peter, you're, you're a really good player. You just don't realize it. And you can't, you can't play this beautiful game the way you're playing it if you want to be successful. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the start of a conversation um, that led up to this, that we started this project. Um, but it wasn't until... Uh, Honestly, like a few months ago, then when I really it kind of dawned on me, I mean, Jesus Christ, how complicated it is, and multifaceted and and beautiful. When because Mikhail Bartov, the uh, the other guy, he's more of an analyst. He knows you know GTO up upside down, left right, uh, and he can analyze any situation. Uh, any scenario and peter is more he's got a, a long logging experience uh and he kind of he's a, the translator between michael and me to make me understand and he puts it more in, in practice and yeah it, you know just uh, the more you learn the more you realize you don't know and you know somewhere along the line it was oh it kind of clicked that okay uh this is it's not what I expected. This is so much more. And that, you know, I kind of fell in love with it at that point. Before it was just something I wanted to do, you know, set up a goal and I'm, I'm going to go for this and I'm going to, you know, be, become good at this. Uh, but along the lines, I kind of fell, fell in love with it in, in another way. My guess is if you stick with it, which is, I imagine you're planning on now that you've uh, had the success already, um, yeah. you'll have a few more of those moments along the way where you're, oh, now I see the beauty of the game. You know, like there's there's probably still layers. I mean, I, I still feel like I'm uh, experiencing yeah. that myself and, and I've been doing it for 15 going on 20 years now. Yeah. And I think um, during these six days in, in Paris, I had a few of those moments, you know, when I see other players, I mean, really, really good players making moves and you know, you realize what they're doing and why they're doing it. And aha, uh -huh. <laughs> okay, uh, let's make a note of that one. Uh, so yeah, it's 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 fantastic. When you started working with these guys, uh, Mikkel and and Peter, the other Peter, um, yeah. what was your what was your process? Well, I didn't have much of a process. It was more uh, Michael and Peter that um, they started building up uh, a deck. 
uh, of, in of instruction. And the first slide I remember was that, you know, you know the, the demystification uh, of poker. And they kind of just broke it down into, you know, a, a perceived uh, a view that I have into bits and pieces, and then they kind of build it up again uh, the way it's supposed to be. Um, so that was their process, and that's the one I've been following. So prior to EPT Barcelona, I mean, we were just uh, dry humping it, in lack of a better word. <laughs> and I think we had like five sessions before uh, Barcelona, um, and then dove right into it. And, uh, we've been and they've been adding to the, to those to those decks. I think we've had twelve sessions so far. Um, so it's a lot of theory, but then, you know, during, especially during Paris, um, when they saw that uh, we didn't understand what was happening, but something was happening, uh, they kind of put their poker aside and, and focused on me. And it became more of a, you know, like coaching a boxing match where, uh, you know, I sit in the corner, Peter is waving uh, the towel in front of me and Michael is uh, whispering um, instructions into my ear. <laughs> I think that experience you describe of, of having your friends kind of as like the, the boxing coach in the corner, I can yeah. say that's, um, it really enhances uh, the experience of, I mean, it's obviously it's pretty thrilling to be deep in, in a tournament like that uh, as it is. But uh, I've, Carlos has actually been that person for me on, on a few occasions. Yeah. Um, most recently, the the 2019 um, WSAP main event, I was like, stop, I mean, nowhere near the final table, but somewhat deep in it. And uh, I do feel like it's 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 kind of reassuring to you know feel like you have literally someone in your corner where you can go back to talk to them on, on breaks and things. And uh, I just think it makes the whole experience so much more enjoyable to you know have a, a friend there who's or friends in your case who are uh, sharing it with you absolutely totally agree in, in your life prior to um yeah i guess i guess you know just just outside of poker uh what what did your life look like um before you, you got into into poker you know what, what was your profession and, and that kind of thing yeah uh, taking it you know from the start i mean i started my first company in, in 1994 and since then i've been self-employed starting different types of businesses, uh, usually in, in, in some kind of technology, uh, internet, IT, financial technology, building those companies uh, and then exiting basically. Uh, so yeah, that's that's what I've been doing until 2018 when I, we sold our the last company that we founded and we quit there in 2020 and me and my partner, uh, who was really the brains behind everything. We moved to, to Spain, Marbella, uh, to enjoy retirement uh, in, yeah, like a few years ago. And also I have, th I have three daughters who are still in Stockholm. Yeah. And uh, is, is that where you started playing poker in Marbella? No, really in, in Stockholm, I, I'd say, uh, a couple of years ago. And I actually had a, um, I actually won one tournament in the casino uh, and I had a 11th place finish in the Nordic Masters without realizing it was the Nordic Masters. Uh, and, and I didn't realize I was in the money. So I still have money to <laughs> to take out from, from the casino in Stockholm that I never, that I never cashed out. <laughs> and that, so that's how into it I was. <laughs> Is there anything that you feel like you learned or experiences that you had in your life as, as an entrepreneur um, 
that you are conscious of using while you're playing poker? Mm, yeah, I, I think I'm quite fearless. And I, you know, I think many poker players, they know all the moves that and all the tools that they have at hand. But they might not use them in every in every scenario. They might be scared of the tournament life, or uh, you know, the buy-in, or whatever it might be, or the you know, the next ICM or pay jumps. I, I think that's uh, one of the things, one of the takeaways I have, at least. Yeah, you always hear this saying that with startup businesses, there's a very low percentage of success. Um, and so you see a lot of people trying a, a lot of different businesses and being okay with the the um, chance of failure. Uh, that strikes me as something that could help at poker as well. Yeah, 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 I totally agree. Yeah, and I got that question that, you know, uh, when I went into poker, was I afraid of failure? And no, because you can't be afraid of failure if you if you start a business because 99% you're going to fail. So, but if you try 100 times, you might get, uh, you know, one of those off the ground. I imagine also there's sort of a willingness to um, experiment or, or, or innovate uh, and not just to do what you see other people around you doing. Um, that's always felt to me like a important, important poker skill. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it sounds like Peter is kind of just getting started. So he's got his coaches that are kind of putting that stuff together. I imagine once he gets more experience, he'll he'll move to that phase, which you're, ta you're talking about, Andrew, when you said um, you have later, you see more of the game as you, you know, get more experience. And then I think more of that creativity will come out at that point. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. I hope I'll get there at some point as well. Uh, and, and I all, already get, you know, people connecting with me after seeing, you know, this on YouTube or from Paris and asking me to coach them. I say, it's a bit premature for that. We used to have a joke on the podcast where um, we would say, um, oh, that play was creative. And it sounds like a compliment, <laughs> but yeah. it could actually be a, a negative thing. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that with your coaches where you you guys went over something on the slides, but then in the moment you felt that it was time to deviate from the slides and do something different. And yeah. then you kind of hear, hear about it from your coaches later. Yeah, I heard the, the word unconventional sometimes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. But we actually did that. That was actually one that almost backfired totally. Uh, but we realized when that I was going to be on the feature table that uh, you know my my competitors was going to see my place uh, in arrears like with a thirty minute delay. We we did one uh, unconventional move on purpose or twice that I was going to overcall uh, the button with uh, you know not prime hands. I did it twice with A6 off and King 9 off. And that was really setting up that the next time that I was going to overcall the button, I was going to do it with a, with a monster like Ace Ace or King King. If if it ever uh, if it ever happened and it happened the, the day after. Uh, so I overcalled with uh, Pocket Kings uh, to set up Belia, uh, who was a ship leader, and he was in the big blind. So I was hoping for him to, 
you know, remember that if when I overcall him on the button, I do it light and that he was going to, you know, three bet me. But he didn't. So it was just me and, <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and Delaney in the cutoff. Uh, and the flop comes nine high. Uh, so he flops uh, top pair. Uh, I, I think it was nine, nine, three, two or something. So he feels pretty good with 10, nine. And I I race uh, I race his bet, and turn comes at ten. I still feel super happy, and now he's got two bets. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so I move in uh, again. He calls, and then uh, I river a king. <laughs> so nice. Uh, yeah, well, I was so lucky. Uh, but if I hadn't, I probably would have gone all in. But now I, I made a value bet, and uh, he tanked a bit, and eventually called. But and but those are the so that was I think the the commentators that said that that was unconventional, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just calling calling on the button with King King. It is, although I think that's also, I mean, that gets to the thing I was saying before about the willingness to experiment or, or innovate, which in this case, and probably for the better, you know, it didn't mean disregarding the advice of your coaches, but, you know, in in collaboration with them to think yeah. about how can you be unconventional in a good way, you know, to uh, lead people to, um, as I imagine, even, even if it didn't set up this one exact situation that you were hoping for, it probably did give people a mistaken view of just what your general level of poker understanding was. If you can find an opportunity to make a sort of cheap mistake, like it doesn't actually cost you very much to overcall with a six or whatever. And then it leads to people making big mistakes against you later. I, I think that's something people used to talk about in poker all the time and as it's become more more like solver driven i think fewer people think in those terms yeah no i definitely agree and i, I felt also since i was kind of the, the new kid on the block I, I needed to do something to just put them off uh, and not you know i didn't want I, I i didn't feel i could beat them at their own game so i had to do something you know <laughs> so we invented the the move of the day so then we you know <laughs> the day, day six we thought about another move and uh day six a uh, third one so yeah I, I mean to be fair to be fair that hand may have worked out for you in the sense that Maybe the player with the 10-9 also watched the footage from before and saw that you had a wide range there. Otherwise, maybe he doesn't call your raise on the flop. And if you think about it that way, he kind of got lucky on the turn, and then you just yeah. got re-lucky on the river. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. I know he definitely I watched the stream. <laughs> are, are you open to sharing what were the, uh, the other plays of the day? Yeah, we had one uh, where I was going to – but this was, I don't want to name names, but it was against a, a specific player that had a certain tendency. So I was going to, uh, if if I was the initial racer, so uh, post-flop, if I hit something like a, a really good, like a straight draw with, or flash draw with a, with a pair or something, I was going to uh, never see bet against that particular guy. But I don't want to name names, so. That's understandable. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like that's a lot of the, the fun of poker is the 
trying to think of ways to like out outsmart or outmaneuver your opponents. And um, I think that the side, I mean, I, I use solvers all the time and I like them, but I do feel like that uh, the, the emphasis on, on solvers these days is in some way obscuring what I think was initially the attraction of poker for many people, which was mm-hmm. just kind of like getting by on your wits and, and just being more clever than the other guy. Yeah. 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 How is the how is the the general experience of um of, of getting deep in this uh and you know, this I imagine was you know a big tournament for you um you know, outside of like the actual poker strategizing just you know what, what was that experience like uh, surreal um, I mean of course you know day one to three uh, I played the the best poker of my life. Uh, I had a few lucky breaks, um, you know, getting in with Jack Jack versus Ace Ace and winning. But you know, uh, it's uh, you you go thinking, uh, what is going on? What is happening? It's day three now, and I, and I have a uh, hundred big blinds, and you know, everything is going my way. And then day four comes along, and you start looking at the, you know, okay, there's thirty people left. And people started coming up to you, taking selfies and, you know, <laughs> all sorts of things. And we're routing for you. We hope you win and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then, you know, day four, getting on the feature table and, you know, people started calling from Sweden, from Arbea, from, you know, all across and, you know, shouting like it's a World Cup or something. So it's, that's, <laughs> it was... It was super exciting. It was just, just amazing, uh, just amazing. And I, I just felt super blessed all along. And even when I lost the final hand, I, I was, I was super happy. Was your family in Paris with you? Well, uh, no, girlfriend and uh, Michael and Peter. Um, Peter suggested that we should uh, ask you about the church donation box incident. The church. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so uh, outside the venue was this cute little church uh, that I passed every morning from uh, on my way uh, from my hotel. So uh, the first morning I went in uh, uh, and I put fifty euros uh, in the collection box, and it's this little this little hole in the top uh, with the lever on the left with just an arrow and a French word. Uh, so I thought I was supposed to put the uh, the bill in that little hole and and then put the lever or just pull, pull the lever. Mm-hmm. So I did and I pulled the lever which opened up the box and put my uh, 50 euro note just, you know, not where it was supposed to be. And it, just a little triangle was sticking up with my, uh, on, on my note. So I looked around, I was alone in the church. Yeah, and I started, you know, trying to get it up again. <laughs> so I'm standing there trying to pickpocket the, the donation box. <laughs> and I was so afraid that someone would come in and say, what the f- are you doing? <laughs> you know, I said, like, come on, let's get up. And in the end, I couldn't get it up. So I just took a credit card and put it all the way down so that no one else would steal it. And then I would tell them afterwards that you have a 50 euro that is not in the actual box. Uh, and then I went in every morning after that to to put one a reel <laughs> in the actual box. <laughs> so, but yeah, yeah, we were laugh- we laughed about that one just in case the priest would come in and 
catch me in the act of trying to pull out my the 50 euros I was trying to donate. And and especially after the win, you know, see the headlines. <laughs> <laughs> you know, EPT win, he won uh, 780 euros. He tried to steal 50 euros from the donation box. <laughs> Are you religious in general, or is this just like an inspired thing because you were walking past this church? I have, a, I wouldn't say religious, but I have a, I have my own little relationship to God, um, and I, I just like, uh, I donate a lot. Uh, I work with uh, organizations of of different religions, um, you know, helping them, uh, donating to them in, in their charities. Um, yeah, that's basically, I, I, I think we all get a little bit more spiritual once we get to final tables. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. True. Yeah. I think w- once you've made those donations on day one, two, three, you don't want to stop doing it on four. No, exactly. <laughs> right. no, no, no. <laughs> no, it was more like I was increasing them every, <laughs> this is going quite well. I'm going to, I'll keep doing this. Well, actually, on the on the on the morning of the of the final day, I went into the same church, of course, did my fifty euros, and then there was this uh, this little book that you can write your wishes. Uh, and my girlfriend uh, uh, Shore said that ask God to win, uh, but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I asked for the right person to win. And when I heard Belia that he said he was going to buy a house for his mom, he was going to, you know, do these uh, wonderful things. And I, I spoke to him many times, you know, during breaks. And it was a re- really nice guy, also a really good player. He was dominating, you know, the the last couple of days. Uh, but it was also a really nice guy. So I, I didn't, uh, don't get me wrong, I wanted to win. <laughs> I really wanted that trophy. Uh, but uh, I didn't mind losing to to him. And you got a trophy anyway, right? Yeah, but <laughs> uh, uh, not quite as you know the one that Belia got. Uh, I had one of the, in the PokerStars production. He he ran away and produced uh, a special one himself in a green frigolite. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that one. Uh, no, but Peter told me about it. Okay, yeah, <laughs> but it's it's on my uh, uh, on my trophy board now. So, are there particular causes that you um, focus on with your when when you're talking about like the the charitable giving? Are there specific places where you try to focus that? Yeah, it's, um, oh, this is a long long answer because it's so many different type of things (laughs) things that i do by myself and uh, also when i back other organizations when they do certain things and they need certain help so uh, like last christmas i went to one organization i said that if you know that there are any uh, any people that are struggling during christmas uh, whatever it might be let me know. So they reached out to their community and they sent me a list of people and, you know, the the struggles they were facing, um, like a family that couldn't, that were five months behind their electrical bills and couldn't pay, was going to get evicted like a week before Christmas. And, you know, a list of those things. And then I just cleared the, their, the debt that they had. 
mm-hmm. you know, that, that whole list. There was one guy he couldn't didn't afford uh, to get a passport and th- certain things. So from small to, to you know, yeah, you know, a couple thousand euros uh, for a family can mean a lot. So I do those kinds of things. You may be aware that there's kind of a movement. It's certainly not you know, restricted to, to poker, but it's kind of come on my radar because there are some prominent poker players who are into this of you know, effective altruism and uh, trying to think about what's what's the most good that I can can do with my money. I, so I imagine some of those people hearing this would think like, well, okay, it's it's nice to help one family with several thousand dollars, but you know, there's probably or several thousand euros, uh, but there's probably ways you could have helped uh, you know a thousand people with uh, several thousand euros or something like that. Um, how do you think about those uh just that, that problem in general of like where you want to direct your your resources yeah it's a well i do both uh, so it's not that i only give that family uh uh money but for me i mean it's also if you put money into a, a large organization you give your money and you don't know you have no clue mm-hmm. and you know six months later you read about the uh, a member of the board getting a hundred uh, or a million dollars in salary. Right. And you're like, what the F? Um, hmm. So, so for me, um, uh, it means more to just see that, okay, my money went, went exactly to this uh, occasion. And I, uh, I did what I could do for the, for that specific family or that specific uh, individual in that circumstance. Um, but then I, yeah, I, I think if you're in a certain situation, you, you can do multiple things, uh, not excluding, uh, what you just said, uh, or what I just said. Yeah. I, I've always felt like, I mean, I think it's not, and maybe there are some people who, who can just motivate themselves in that very, you know, kind of calculating a rational way of just like, what's the most good that I can do. But I mean, I think it's also important to do something that, that you can sustain. And so I think if there's something that, um, and, and I I've, I've worked with some of these small organizations myself, um, where the, 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 I guess, satisfaction that, that you get personally from seeing yeah. the, the good that your money is doing, like probably motivates you to give more in the future. And certainly that's a big part of like, you know, having worked with fundraising teams from these organizations, you know, they're always thinking about well, what are the donors getting out of this and how do we make sure that they, they get it so that they're motivated to continue donating. And I think that like thinking about that in the context of yourself and, you know, what do I need to do to motivate myself to continue helping in, in the future? That's strikes me as kind of an entirely reasonable uh, uh, way to think about it. Yeah. But also things you can do, just simple things, just go to the store, buy a bunch of bread and, uh, you know, butter and, and stuff to have on it, you know, make the sandwiches, uh, get a few thermoses of coffee and, you know, you just hit the town. <laughs> and because many of these homeless people, it's not just that they are hungry and they need money. They have no one to talk to. So if you just sit down for 10 seconds, you will hear the story of their life and, you know, just spend, you know, 15, 20 minutes with them makes a world of difference to them. Yeah. The one, the one thing that I don't like about the, um, I don't know if this is a problem with um, effective altruism or, Mm -hmm. or specifically, or just a problem overall with, um, charity like 
people kind of forget they they think that you're doing something to reach out and help other people but i kind of view it as it it, it helps me too and and yeah. sometimes i even think about you know it helps me first the fact yeah. that i've been like put in a position to where i can help others that that gives me some purpose to the things i've done and the a side effect of that is that other people benefit so when i think about it from that perspective it makes sense for me to donate to causes that are important to me specifically even if that money could have been more effectively used in other causes that aren't as important to me specifically yeah uh, that's a nice way of putting it when you're talking about you know, going out on the street with um, thermoses of coffee and, and, and bread and butter, is this in um, in Sweden or, or Spain or both? Uh, both. Uh, it, it started in Stockholm. Uh, I was waiting for my then wife. Uh, we were going to buy lobsters and have a you know a champagne to celebrate on a Friday, and I was waiting for her outside this uh, this place, uh, and I'm I met the homeless guy and. You know, I had 20 minutes to spare and I asked him if he was hungry. And we went to a, uh, a kiosk where they sold sausages and things like that. Uh, it's, that's a long story, so I'm not going to take it now. But that was the start, you know, just hanging out with him for 20 minutes. Uh, that kind of changed my perspective of, of, on a lot of things. And uh, that's when I started. Um, I, was, I became a volunteer for... Uh, a local stock, um, what do you call it, the Stockholm charity. Mm-hmm. So I worked at a homeless shelter like every Wednesday. Yeah, it's a long story, but that's how it started. It started in Stockholm and then uh, I kind of continued uh, doing that in different shapes. Part of why that caught my attention, and maybe you're aware of this, but you know, homelessness is a huge problem in the United States. And mm-hmm. uh, the Nordic countries, including Sweden, are like often presented as um, the the solution. You know, sort of like, oh, why can't we be like Sweden or something? So to, to hear you talk about uh, just going out on the streets of Stockholm and you know encountering homeless people. I mean, not not that I like doubted there were homeless people in, in Stockholm, but um, I don't know if, if if you have a sense of you know what 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 the perception of that is from the United States or, or you know how much of a problem uh, it is in, in Stockholm. But I, I think I've I've been sold a picture of Sweden that suggests uh, there's there's not a lot of uh, homelessness there. Oh, I think we have our share. I mean, in certain cities in in the U.S., I know it's really really bad, uh, but even if it's not a huge number. Uh, for those who are homeless, it's a huge problem. So, uh, but I think we have probably more homeless shelters than in the U.S. per capita. So, if you don't want to sleep outside in Sweden, you probably don't have to. Uh, you might have to take a bus ten minutes in one direction, uh, but you will get uh, a roof over your head. Yeah, I, I don't think there are too many places here that uh, can make that guarantee. Are you still involved in the, I mean, I, I know you've described yourself as retired, but uh, in entrepreneurialism at all? Oh, yeah. Um, retirement wasn't that much fun. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, and I, I, I'm putting the brakes on myself like every month. Okay, this is the last one. This is the last one. Uh, <laughs> and now I'm, I'm in the midst of the last one again. 
so I have, I'm involved in, I think it's 11 startups at the moment. And the 11th is going to be the, the last one. <laughs> Uh, but it's uh, it's super fun, and I'm quite passive uh, if I uh, compare to what I used to be. You know, when I ran my own businesses, uh, so it's usually when you know few strategic meetings per year per per company, and you know it's okay. And you're kind of there in like an advisory sort of role. Exactly. Have you done any of that kind of work? Um, with with like a nonprofit or, or charitable organizations kind of like bringing your um your your business business expertise uh to to you know it, it assist them in that way rather than just assisting them financially you know assisting them with some of the um like business skills that you have no not really no it's more of a financial thing yeah i was going to say that i've tried a few times <laughs> but it doesn't uh uh, it's a it's a different kind of world when it comes to you know business orientation and uh, how you look at uh, at it from a business standpoint. Yeah, it is. Although I think so, just from my my own experience, uh, I actually before I got as much into poker as I am now, I was the executive director of of a small nonprofit organization, and I was really not. You know, I, I was the guy who started it, so I sort of turned into the director. But I didn't really have any experience, you know, running a, a even a small organization or managing people or anything like that. And um, we were going to hire a, a new person to take over from me um, who would be better qualified for it, and, and also so that I could focus more on on poker. And the person we we hired had was an expert in in sort of our subject area in education, but also didn't have that kind of managerial experience. Mm -hmm. And we had gotten some grants from different um, foundations and, and things. It was just financially. But I think that the thing that helped us the most was a group, it was called the Social Venture Partners. And it was a lot of folks who were either retired or at least, you know, late in their in their career and had a lot of executive experience. So in addition to giving money to the organization, they did a lot of coaching with our with our new executive director and and kind of helped him better understand things about like just budgeting and and managing people and you know what goes into running a, from their perspective, I'm sure a small organization. But I think it's the sort of thing that a lot of people, uh, they just sort of find themselves in executive positions because they were good at you know doing whatever it is that whatever like programming the charity does. Um, and they're not necessarily like don't have that that experience, or at least that was, you know, my um, my experience working with a, a small but growing organization. So how did he do? Uh, I think pretty well. I mean, they, they certainly grew a lot from the time when I left. Uh, it, it was uh, uh, we were serving when I left, maybe thirty or forty students. I mean, it was really quite quite small. And I think by the time he left, it was like ten times that size. Uh, okay. And I think the, the budget also had had grown by about ten x, and it's still going now. Uh, Fifteen almost years later, um, oh, under nice. you know yet yet a different uh, leader. Oh, good. I was afraid you're going to say that he, that he failed. <laughs> usually, it's, you know, if you're the the one who starts it, usually the people uh, that were around you they looked up to you and mm -hmm. you know your vision. And maybe if you hand that over to the wrong person, you know, things uh, tend to fall to pieces. Well, yeah, that that was the thing. It was you know, he he? I think was I was very worried about that when I was leaving the organization. And of the people who had applied for the position, he was really I, I felt like the only person who 
Rube was going to have the passion to kind of make it his own and, and, and carry it forwards, but he didn't have any of that like managerial experience. So, you know, that was why it was helpful to, um, like, I think we needed someone with passion for the programming to yeah. uh, take ownership of the organization, but it was going to be, it was not going to be primarily a job about teaching that, which was his background. You know, he, he was yeah. going to be running a, an organization with a million dollar budget. And so, you know, getting, finding someone who could provide him with, you know, not just the, the, the budget, but with, the skills to uh you know manage the organization i think was was critical to uh making that work yeah so what are your goals in poker now i mean it, it sounded like a, the initial goal was was make a big final table and and you've i'm sure blown that out of the water um what are you looking to do in poker now yeah i want that trophy now <laughs> <laughs> a real one <laughs> uh so yeah, and I also realized that my passport is expiring, so I'm going to Sweden to renew that, and hopefully I get I get the new one ahead of uh, EPT in Monte Carlo. So that that will be the next one, and then WSOP in Vegas. Yeah, and then it's uh, the rest of the European Poker Tour this year that I'm I'm looking forward to. So you're looking to travel mostly in in Europe, with the exception of WSOP. Yeah. Is that um, so? I, I, I think you'd probably find softer competition if you if you went elsewhere. But I maybe maybe you're looking for the opposite. Maybe you are trying to find uh, the the toughest people to challenge yourself against. Yeah, no, I wouldn't mind a softer field. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you might want to look into you know playing like the Asian circuit or uh, even here in the US. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll probably take you up on that if I don't succeed in the <laughs> next couple of festivals. Yeah, I mean, you will enjoy you will enjoy the WSOP if you're looking for softer fields. Yeah, I go. Are you going there? Yes, I will for sure. I I'm basically nice. live. Uh, are you based in Vegas? I am. Yes. Yeah, and I'm I'm on the east coast of the US. I don't know if I'm going to be there yet. Okay. Uh, but yeah, it's, I, I mean, I guess this would have been before your time, but uh, for a long time, you know, poker, I, I used to think of as sort of America's game and, and other people played it and all the best players in the world were Americans. And I don't think that's been the case for, for 10 plus years, basically since uh, Americans lost access to poker stars and, and most of the online market uh now I think Europe is really the the capital of poker. Even the, the the Americans who are still among poker's elite, they're not playing in the U.S. anymore. You know, there a lot of them are, are based outside of the U.S. and they're uh, traveling elsewhere to to uh, compete at the highest level. Yeah, yeah, which is unfortunate, but maybe we'll get it back one day. Yeah, you will. <laughs> What's your take on the the poker world in general? Kind of the, the people that you've met through it, and, and the experiences that um, you know. How, how do you find our community? Oh, it's so diverse. Um, oh yeah, I don't know what to say. Um, in in general, uh, I'm surprised on how many in incredible uh, people I meet uh, on all on all levels, poker wise, socially, and uh, but they're also uh, <laughs> the exact opposite as well. Uh, that I'm, I'm equally surprised how people can be such assholes. <laughs> 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 I'm shocked. <laughs> 
Yeah, so I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question, but it's extremely diverse. But mostly happily surprised them. Yeah. Did you have any expectation coming in of you know what what you thought poker players would be like? Yeah, I think I have a, a, you know a stereotype you know from from the movie world of uh, you know basement clubs and you know dodgy characters. Uh, but of course, I mean I've seen my my share of YouTube clips uh, to prove the opposite as well. But I, I think the organizations in, in general has been so much more professional than uh, than I expected. Uh, like the European Poker Tour, uh, WPT, uh, WSOP as well, of course. How do you feel like poker has changed you since you've started uh, you know, playing more and, and studying? Has it changed how you look at other things outside of poker? Mm, that was a tough one. No, I don't think it has changed much. I think it it, uh, it made me continue my travels, which <laughs> which is nice. Um, but other than that, no, I don't think it's changed a lot. Does your girlfriend play? Yeah, uh, she's actually quite good, uh, and we're uh, we're hosting a home game on Saturday, uh, so we're we're studying now <laughs> for her to get her name on the trophy. Uh, and uh, Mikael, my coach, he's flying down on Friday. He's going to do a session with her Friday night uh, to see if uh, he can nudge her a little bit extra for Saturday. Is there anything that you'd want to recommend to, to listeners? It doesn't have to be poker related at all. Just you know, a favorite book or, or movie or you know, something that you wish more people were uh, aware of and engaging with? You should have emailed me that one because I should have. I'm sorry. I would need more time. <laughs> uh, no, not not that, uh, on the top of my head. No. Okay. Anything else that you were were hoping to talk about that I just didn't know enough to to ask you? No, I think you you covered a, a lot and much more than I, I thought I was going to. <laughs> to be honest, I thought it was going to be a five seven minutes thing, but. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, no, 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 no. I don't mean it negatively. Uh, I, I usually don't speak that much. So maybe if, if you look at the, uh, you know, European day four, five, six, you don't see me talk a lot. <laughs> uh, Carlos, anything else from you? No, no. I think this was uh, a wide-reaching conversation. I think we learned a lot about Peter. Awesome. Well, Peter, thank you for taking the time, and congratulations again. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you, Carlos. Uh, I hope I see you you. both in Vegas. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Bye, guys. Take care. Good luck. Thanks, you too. You too. Bye-bye. Of a car, my light of the fair passage of a bill. 